I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. That's my goal for this day. At the end of this time, we would cling to Christ more, and we would marvel at the cost, the sacrifice of Jesus more. Yesterday, we had a ice water rescue tra- training at the fire department that I serve on, and as most trainings begin with classroom time, thinking about tech procedures and how you go about it, understanding the uh, dangers of ice water, as one of the guys was saying, uh, going near the water seems against everything my mom taught me. <laughs> you stay away from the edge. Uh, with good reason, but obviously if someone is in the water, something has happened, didn't know something about the ice, the circumstances, and they teach us helpful things like the 1-10-1 rule, that someone falls in, they have about one minute to control their breathing and calm down a little bit, 10 minutes of meaningful movement, if they're going to get out, it's usually within that first 10 minutes, and then there's an hour of, if they can stay afloat, We can get to them within an hour. They might get hypothermia, but usually they're okay. After that uh, hour window, the chances go far down. So we have classroom training, get out the gear, talk through it, then we head out. And this day, I didn't get into one of the suits, but I have in previous years. And these suits are the key to why we can go into the water. They are buoyant. They're, I want to use the right term, dry suits, where you don't get wet at all. And so uh, they're one piece, zip up, just the face is exposed there. And uh, because you have those suits, you can go to the edge of the water and uh, here uh, just practice by just going in and getting getting the hang of it, getting in there. Uh, These suits are really key and essential. You say they're uh, out of buoyancy, not just for yourself, but for someone else. And You have to learn to trust the suit. There was one of the guys that really didn't want to get in. He'd never done this training before. He didn't want to get in. We kind of, oh, come on, it's fine. The suits are fine. And he got in, and by the end of the day, he's like, hey, that was actually kind of fun. (laughs) Go swimming in February and not get cold at all. So going in there, and then there's some rescue techniques. There's a little... uh, hoop there, a harness that you put over someone that keeps them afloat and attached to a line, and then you can pull them in, practice various ways to do this here. I was uh, pulling the rope and throwing snowballs yesterday, uh, watching, uh, standing from a distance this time, but here, this was two years ago, I was helping work in rescue. If we didn't trust the suit, we wouldn't go. Number one rule of rescue is your own safety first and foremost. If you're not safe, you can't rescue and help anyone else. But we had to learn to trust the suit to be able to go in and then help someone else in their time of need. God wants us to trust Christ for salvation and to continue to trust him and to recognize all that he has done for us 
and to clearly grasp this is the greatness, the significance of all that you have done for me. And he wants us to continue to grow in this knowledge, to have this clear understanding. This is what Jesus has done for me. And much like if someone didn't trust those suits, they wouldn't go into the water, or if they did, they'd be putting themselves in great danger. So too, we need to grow in knowing what Christ has done for us, knowing that Christ is fully worthy of our trust. And so from this passage of Scripture today, I want to challenge us in this, a clear understanding of your conversion motivates you to stand, hold fast to Christ, recognizing what took place when I was saved, when I was converted, when I was turned from my sins to Christ and was rescued. What took place and continue growing in that then should learn, uh, should lead us to be motivated to hold fast to Christ. There's a number of different terms that the Bible uses, speaking about salvation, justification, speaking about having eternal life, the term that is used here is reconciliation. Reconciliation. We saw that in verse 21, 22, reconciled. It's also in verse 20, uh, to, by him to reconcile. And so we want to think about this today. Uh, what does it mean to be reconciled to God? How did that take place? Why did we need that reconciliation a definition of reconciliation is a sinner's state of separation from God is done away with and restored to a relationship with peace. We need to think through each of those. Sometimes people even know, don't even know that they're separated from God because of their sin. They don't think that sin is that big of a deal, but it is. But it's done away with by God, we'll see, and they're restored to a relationship of peace. How does this reconciliation come about? We'll look at three realities from Colossians 1 this morning, three realities. As Paul is writing to this church, this group of believers that he'd never met, but he's concerned about them spiritually. He'd heard of their faith in Christ and wanted them to continue on in that faith, but knew that they were facing some false teaching that could persuade them to move away from Christ. Well, yes, Jesus is nice, but you need something else as well. You need something more. And Paul reiterates again and again, Christ is sufficient. Christ's work is enough. You need to keep growing in knowing that work. And so Paul points them to this reality, three realities here. The first reality is this. You were estranged from God. You were estranged from God. Look there in verse 21. And you who once were alienated, it's not saying from another planet, but out of place, like a citizen from one country going to another, a foreign alien, uh, or the idea of out of place that is estranged. And furthermore, enemies in your mind by wicked deeds. They're enemies of God, hostile in their minds uh, towards God, now, this is who they were separated from God. Why? Because of their sins. We think about uh, difficult relationships, and, and we all can face those at times in our lives. Usually, we think, well, it's the other person's problem. They did something. That's why it's like this. Well, as we think about it in us and God, we can't blame God and say, well, God is the problem. 
No, we are the problem. We have done what is wrong. We are separated from God. Why? Because we're enemies. We're hostile to him in our minds. He's not just talking about our brains, but speaking about the inner being. The Bible uses heart and mind often to speak of that inner reality. So inside we are hostile towards God. God says, this is what I want you to do. Say, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to know what's right and wrong. I don't want to listen to God. And that inner heart attitude leads to, as the verse continues, wicked works. So we do what is sinful. Why? Because it's part of who we are. We're sinners by nature, and it's expressed in our sinful acts. This doesn't mean that we do every sin possible, but that sin has affected every part of us. And we are hostile towards God And we want to get away with it. In fact, we think that we will get away with it. We don't want God to be over us at all. And Paul reminds the believers in Colossae, and he reminds us as well, this is who you were before Christ. You were estranged from God. Your relationship with him was broken. There was no relationship. And you could not come to God on your own. Everyone starts out in life this way. As a sinner separated from God, we don't deserve his mercy and his grace. We deserve his judgment because of our sins. And a passage like scripture like this, and there's certainly many others, should lead us to this conclusion. First of all, that I am a sinner. I have done things that are wrong against God. I have broken his holy standard of righteousness. I have disregarded his holy character. But more than just seeing ourselves as a sinner, to see ourselves as a helpless sinner, that one who says, I can't be good enough. I can't try hard enough. Because some people see themselves as sinners and they say, well, I just need to do some good thing. And then God will accept me. Or maybe if I good works outweigh my bad works, then God will accept me one day. I'll, I'll turn over a new life, make some changes in my life. They'll agree to God that they're a sinner, but not a helpless sinner. They can't do anything on their own to deserve, uh, to, to earn God's favor. And God wants us to see ourselves as helpless sinners. We in no way could reconcile our relationship with God. We couldn't do it. We couldn't fix it up because our sins had separated us from him. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, But we all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. You don't use a filthy rag as a dinner napkin. We can't use our righteous deeds to make God accept us. Because even though they look pretty good to us, they're like filthy rag in his sight. It's not enough. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Do you catch the emphasis there in those verses? None is righteous. None is good enough. And that includes all of us. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, 
And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We can't make dead things come alive. And we can't make ourselves come alive spiritually speaking because we are separated from God. We're dead in our sins. We're estranged from God. This is the first reality. But here's the next reality. God reconciled you. God reconciled you. Look as the verse continues, yet or but. What a glorious transition. This is who we were separated from God, yet now he, God has reconciled. He's reconciled us to himself. And this reconciliation, doing away with our sin that has separated us from God and restoring us to a relationship of peace This reconciliation has taken place, how? In the body of his flesh through death. And so it's through Christ's death upon the cross for us. Why did he die? So that we could be reconciled to God. And begin in verse 20, uh, here he's saying, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There he speaks of reconciliation taking place through the blood of his cross. So both the shed blood of Christ is mentioned as the means of our reconciliation and also his death upon the cross for us. So why did Christ die? So that we could be reconciled to God. That reconciliation that we could not bring about on our own, that we desperately needed, God in his grace provided it through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent him from heaven to come to this earth. And Jesus, the God-man, lived a sinless life, had done nothing wrong, but yet was put to death upon the cross and died there giving over his life, shedding his blood so that we could be reconciled to him. Certainly that reconciliation takes place as we come to the end of ourselves and we agree with God that we're sinners, helpless sinners, and we cry out in faith, believing in him as our Savior. This is what he's mentioned in the book already, chapter 1 and verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, uh, later on in verse uh, Six, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. And verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so their human response is to believe, to trust completely in the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And I hope that is your, true of you, that you are trusting only in what Jesus has done for you, for your salvation. That's the only way for you to be reconciled to God. But this reconciliation wasn't just because of you. It was because of God taking the first step, the initiating the process, him bringing about. God reconciles us to himself. If we could think of it this way, we're over here and our backs are towards God. And we don't want to turn towards God. We don't want to listen to him. We don't want to do anything that he has to say. And yet he's over here with open arms saying, come to me. 
I sent my son to pay the penalty for your sins. Come to me. And God works in our hearts and lives so that we begin to see our sin and the work of Christ. And he causes us to turn and trust him as our savior. God is the one who brought that about. But notice what God is doing all along. He's here, ready to receive us, to restore us to that place of peace. Why? Because Christ took the penalty for us upon the cross. It's amazing truth. And we need to remind ourselves it, just like Paul is, this church in Colossae. I mean, I wonder, just think to yourself, when was the last time you thought, I've been reconciled to God? My guess is it's not a daily thought. Thankful for forgiveness. We're thankful for heaven. We're thankful that we're righteous in God's sight. But we need to think even more and continue to grow in grasping the work of Christ for us. And realize I've been reconciled to God through the death and shed blood of Jesus Christ. I don't deserve that, but I'm so thankful for that. That's what will lead us to the Lord's table in just a little bit. As we think about his body, as as the bread pictures his body and the cup pictures his blood that was shed for us, we should be thinking, among other things, through his death, through his shed blood, I am reconciled to God. What a cost that he gladly endured so we could be reconciled to him. The hymn, the song, All I Have is Christ, I think summarizes this well. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. As I beheld God's love displayed, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Second reality, God reconciled us. Third reality, God will present you blameless in heaven. Yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Yet the verse continues with a purpose statement. What, what was the purpose? What's, what's the goal that, of reconciling us? to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Uh, So to present speaks of really the future state. And so when you think about these terms, holy, blameless, and above reproach, uh, sometimes the Bible speaks of our justification, the believer declared righteous in God's sight, or our sanctification, that we are seen as holy in God's sight. These are our positions in Christ and Not because we're doing what's right all the time, but positionally, this is how God sees us. But that's not what he's talking about here, because uh, there's a condition statement mentioned in verse 23. 
uh, and this idea that he's going to one day present you. And so he's pointing forward to eternity. And really, each of these three realities, number one is the past. Number two is the present for every believer. Number three is the future. Well, God will present every believer uh, to God in heaven. They're going to be holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. So they're no longer be guilty of any sin, no longer doing anything, uh, any accusations could be against them. They'll be completely holy, set apart, uh, receiving their glorified bodies, perfect for all eternity. And so that's where God is going to bring the believer. But we need to think about this, this verse 23. He says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. He says, so it's like God will present you in the future if you continue in the faith. There's a number of ways that the New Testament uses conditional statements, and this one is used in such a way that it's assumed to be true, that is assumed that they would continue in the faith. And so Paul's saying, if you continue in the faith, and I really think that you will continue in the faith, uh, you will be wholly perfect, blameless in his sight. Uh, it would be like if I would go away for a little while, I said, Stacy, don't forget me. And I assume that she wouldn't forget me, and I know she wouldn't forget me. Uh, but that's the idea here, what Paul is saying, that you continue in the faith. And I know that you will, but he's just reminding them. Remember, there, there's some false teaching that they're being exposed to. I don't know if Christ is everything that you need. Maybe you need to do something else. He's saying, no, don't move away from Christ. Continue steadfast in your faith, grounded and steadfast idea of having a firm foundation. Why would we move away from Christ and seek another foundation when he is the solid rock in which your faith stands? That question can be really simple in the good times, but in the hard times, it becomes a bit more real. Is Christ really enough? Are you sure? Think back to the water rescue. I used the suits before. I'm okay. I can go in on my own. Really dangerous. But that's what sometimes we're tempted to do spiritually. Yes, I know Jesus is my Savior. But maybe I need something else. Maybe I need some really spiritual things to do. Maybe I'm just going to try harder in my own effort and Paul is going to, throughout this book, remind them again and again of the work of Christ. That is why they're accepted in God's sight, only because of that. And because of the work of Christ, that's how they begin to grow spiritually through their union with Christ, that connection with him. So he's saying, don't move away from him. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel. And it sounds crazy, but... That's what sometimes we're tempted and prone to do. The gospel certainly gives hope. That's true and lasting hope of heaven, of eternal life, of being free from the presence of sin in our lives, being with our Savior. And yet sometimes we say, I'm not sure if that's all that I want. Why would we want to leave hope when we found it in Jesus Christ? And the answer should be we wouldn't. 
We need to remind ourselves. And notice what he's saying. Regrowing in knowing what Jesus has done for you and reconciling you to God. Growing in knowing that leads you to a steadfastness in your faith in him. So that you don't move away from the hope of the gospel. You say, Christ is where it's at. He's my savior. I'm, I'm not going to try to rest on my own goodness, my own abilities. It's not because I've changed my life a bunch that God's going to accept me. It's only because of the work of Jesus. And I'm going to remain steadfast in the faith. I'm not going to move away from the stability that he gives for me in my life. I'm not going to move away from the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to cling to that again and again. I'm going to keep close to the Lord. And Paul goes on and says, this gospel which you've heard, which was proclaimed to every creature, every person, really every group of people under heaven, it's for all people of which I, Paul, became a minister. I've had the tremendous privilege to preach the gospel, Paul says, and I've been able to preach it to a lot of different people. And it's the same source of hope, the same source of stability, same source of reconciliation to God for all people. Don't look for something else. Hold fast to Christ. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. You don't need to move away. You don't need to diminish the work of Christ. We don't need something else. We need to be reminded of his work again and again and again. And to see the high cost of his death, his shed blood, that would lead us to cling to him. Thankful that because he died and shed his blood, we're reconciled to God. We know his peace. And as we cling to him in, in faith, he's going to bring us all the way home. Present us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight.